0: Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Awesome. Well, this morning we uh, come to church and it's Palm Sunday and number one, can you believe it's already Palm Sunday? 2017? I mean, it's here now. Easter is here. And as we come into this Palm Sunday and and this Easter season, uh, we start getting uh, into a lot of traditions of our church. Um, This morning, the kids came in with the palm branches and, and I don't know if you know, but palm branches at Jesus' time were a sign of victory It was the kind of thing you would do when your army came back and they'd won a big war, and you'd say, yay, we won. Um, So the palm branches was a sign of victory. Um, In some churches, they they hold on to those palm branches. You take them home, and you bring them back next year and exchange it in for a new one. Uh, Some churches make those palm branches into a little cross, and you take it home this week, and you would meditate on it. Other churches keep the palm branches, and next year for Ash Wednesday, they would burn those palm branches down, and those are the ashes they would use that we use on uh, Ash Wednesday. Lots of traditions, and... Some places in the world, they don't even have palm branches, and they just use whatever local horticulture they have available to them to, to respect and remember Palm Sunday. Uh, and then this, this week, we'll also have a lot of other traditions we get involved with. Um, on Thursday, we'll uh, practice uh, communion with each other. And if, and if you don't have a, a mission community that you're involved with, uh, maybe find one. Um, I don't know how you would go about doing that, but uh, find a mission, church, mission community to join with and, and participate in um, communion this coming Thursday. And then on Friday, we'll uh, remember Good Friday, the day that Jesus died on the cross. And then, of course, Easter Sunday, and we'll have an Easter egg hunt. There's all these traditions involved at this time of year. And traditions of themselves are neither good nor bad. When traditions go bad is when they become more important than God, that we begin to love those traditions and practicing those traditions, and we forget about what the tradition is all about and why we even have the tradition in the first place. But, you know, I think the reason that we have these traditions is that we might push the pause button in our busy lives and just slow down for a minute and think and introspect about what this season is about and, and why we even acknowledge it in the first place. You know, what is this Easter season about? What does it matter? And, you know, I don't, I don't know about you, but maybe this week what I'll do is I'll try to find time in my week and look at either Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John and, and just look at that last week of Jesus' life and, and introspect and ask God to tell me, what does this mean for me? You know, does it, does it make my life any different? And whatever may be your approach to this week, I'm hoping that and I'm praying that this week you would find that time, whether it's with your family or, or I'm more introverted, so I like to do things on an individual basis, and maybe some time on your own. But however you come about it, to, to just spend some time reading God's Word, thinking about what this week means for us. And whether it makes any difference in our lives. As we are here on Palm Sunday, I kind of wanted to see if we could get a a better personal connection to Palm Sunday and what that was like for the people at the time. So I was born and raised here in Houston. I love Houston. I wouldn't live anywhere else. I visit a lot of other cities around the country and the world, but this is my home. I don't want to live anywhere else. This is where I want to live. But the one downside of Houston is we've never had a Super Bowl championship team. We've never even been to the Super Bowl, right? We've never been there. So I was thinking, all these years, if we just had a Super Bowl team, it would be really awesome. Maybe before I die, we could have a Super Bowl team. It would be really great. But the problem is, we make the playoffs. seems like we always lose to the team that wins the Super Bowl. We've had some great players. We had Earl Campbell. We had Warren Moon. We had Ray Childress. we can go to all these players who are all pro players, but we never make it to the Super Bowl. This year, we have a really good defense. Last year was the best defense in the league. We have a good running game. We have good receivers, but we don't have a quarterback. And it seems like that's forever our problem these days, that we don't have a quarterback. So I want to ask you just to use your imagination with me for a little bit and imagine that in this year's draft, certain that the Houston Texans can draft as a quarterback is Zach Lytle. Now the backstory on Zach is, just imagine, the backstory on Zach is that he, as he even in junior high, he was doing incredible things. When he got to high school, all four years he won a state championship. They never lost a game. He broke every record in the city, in the state, in the nation for quarterbacks. He could kick field goals, he could kick extra points, he could punt, he could kick... He could do everything. His team's never lost. He graduated high school after winning the state championship four years in a row, and it's time for college, and of course, Wynn and I say, A&M is the obvious choice, right? (laughs) It's the only choice. But Kenny and Dolores say, no, you need to stay home and go to U of H, you need to stay here with us, right? But Zach... Following his dad, where does he go? Nebraska. (laughs) Wynn and I are like, wait a minute, Nebraska? They're not known for their quarterbacks. It's been a long time since they've even had a real quarterback, and they certainly (laughs) haven't put any quarterbacks in the NFL. So why would you go to Nebraska? But he goes to Nebraska, and in Nebraska, he continues in his ways. They win every game. Again, he's breaking records, he's the MVP of every game. He's doing things that people have never seen before. He can throw with his right hand, he can throw with his left hand. He's kicking field goals from 80 yards away. He's just doing things that no one's ever seen. He's the greatest quarterback ever. And Houston needs a quarterback. So, comes around for draft time, but before he gets to the draft, they win the national championship game. And in the national championship game, in the fourth quarter, They're down by three touchdowns. And a blizzard comes, and it snows, it's freezing cold, and they end up winning by five touchdowns. Greatest game ever, greatest comeback ever, breaks all the records. He wins a Heisman Trophy. I mean, this is the greatest quarterback ever, without a doubt. And Houston Texans are a lock in, and they've got him. And if we get a quarterback, we can win the Super Bowl, right? So we're all fired up. You can imagine the excitement that would be going on in this church. If Zach Lytle was going to be the Houston, Texas quarterback, can you imagine? I mean, Sylvia, who's not even much of a football fan, would be wearing Houston, Texas jersey with Lytle on the back, right? Can you imagine Alex and Victor talking on ESPN about how they used to throw with him in the, behind the church, right? Right? Sarah would be on Dr. Phil, tell us how you raised such a great kid, right? I mean, this place would be famous, Right? because of little Zach, right? We would be really famous. And all of us would have some kind of story of, I was there when Zach, or me and Zach one time, we would all have Zach stories. And can you imagine all the Lutherans around the country going crazy over Zach Lytle? They would become Texan fans also, right? On draft day, we would all gather in the church and watch on the screens when the commissioner calls out the Houston Texans' first pick, right? Houston Texans 2017 pick Zach Lytle. And we go crazy. Because one of our own is going to come, take us to the Super Bowl, right? It doesn't get any better than that. <clears throat> when he came back from the draft, which is in Philadelphia this year, flew back into the Intercontinental Airport, can you imagine what would be at the airport? Signs that we would have up. Welcome home, Zach. We're going to win the Super Bowl. This is it. We've been waiting for this. David Adams been waiting for 54 years, and finally... <laughs> right? But you got to imagine the excitement that would be going on because one of our own is going to take us to the Super Bowl. Then I want you to think about what happens. We're all waiting. I mean, ESPN's outside the church. People in the community are starting to come because they want to know who this guy is and how he's going to take us to the Super Bowl. All these things are going on. People in the community are everywhere coming around because they just want to be a part of this thing. And then we're waiting for the first day of training camp. And the first day of training camp, we all go, right? Because we want to support our homeboy. We all go, we're there. He has an interview before practice, and he comes before all the cameras and before all the world, and he says, I'm just here to say that I ain't going to play football. I don't want to play football. My dad and I have talked about it. And football has become something it wasn't ever meant to be. Football is no longer about sports. It's no longer about competition. It's all about money, and my dad and I have talked about it. I'm not playing football. Matter of fact, I'm starting a coalition that what we're going to do is we're going to get rid of the NFL. We're going to put the NFL out of business. Can you imagine the dismay, the delusionment, the confusion, and can you imagine what Wynn and I would be saying if he'd gone to A&M, this wouldn't have happened, right? LAUGHTER <laughs> But can you imagine what people would start saying oh this kid's nuts we know his dad his dad loves football his dad would never say that what's wrong with him he's crazy all of a sudden there would be a change in how we would see this great guy that we thought was going to come take us to the super bowl well that's kind of a crazy analogy i gave you but that's kind of what was going on at jesus time um you have to appreciate that God's chosen children had been under oppression for a very, very long time. We get upset when we don't get the president we want, but worst case scenario, you've got eight years of who you don't want. The Jews had been going for hundreds of years under oppression of leadership that they didn't pick. Hundreds of years. The Romans were in charge for 500. Before that, way back when, they were... Slaves to the Babylonians, and then it was the Assyrians, and then it was the Greeks, and it just went on and on, and now it's the Romans. And the Romans were kind of tough. The Romans had an idea that they would take you over by power, not by election. The Romans had an idea that to support their power, they would tax you. You have to appreciate that 97% of the people in the world at that time were poverty level. And I'm not talking poverty like in our country, I'm talking about poverty, real poverty. They didn't have anything, much of nothing. And yet, the Romans would tax them. If they didn't have money, they would take things from them. If you had sheep, maybe they'd take your sheep. If you had goats, they'd take your goats. And there was no problem with slavery. Whatever it took to keep the Roman machine going, this was a true oppression. And they had been living under this for a very, very long time, going back all the way to the Babylonians. And then there was a brief period of gap and then they go back to the Egyptians and this oppression was going on. They had leadership that they didn't want. And suddenly comes Jesus. Let's look at, um, well, let's talk about Jesus for a minute. The things that had been going on that these people had seen, never seen before, blind people could see. People who were sick got healthy. People who were demon possessed, no longer demon possessed. 5,000 guests show up for dinner. They all get fed with a couple of pieces of bread and some fish. Water into wine. All kinds of things that have never been seen before. And then, he raises his cousin Lazarus from the dead. And as the Jewish people who have been under hundreds and hundreds of years of oppression look at this man who's doing these things that have never been seen before, they begin to think, maybe... Maybe this is the guy that we've been waiting for, who's going to write everything. We'll no longer be second-class citizens. We'll no longer be in this oppression. Our social, our cultural, our economic, our financial situation will change to the way it should be, to the way that we want it to be. Maybe that will change. Let's look at this morning's text. It's in John 12, verses 12 to 19. Mind you, this is after Lazarus, okay? On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm tree and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is on it as it is written. Oh, beg your pardon. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed these signs. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. So their expectation, their thoughts and their ideas were that after all this time of being oppressed and pushed down and taken from and kicked around culturally and what have you, that Jesus was going to make it right. Kind of like the story I told you about Zach, that he was going to be our quarterback, take us to the Super Bowl. And so when Jesus is marching in, they're holding up those palm branches in victory. And they're yelling out, Hosanna. Do you know what Hosanna means? It's kind of a double entendre, meaning it kind of has two meanings. And Hosanna means, on the one hand, I'm begging you to save me. And on the other hand, it means praise God and the Messiah. So they are acknowledging that they need salvation, that they need to be saved. And they're acknowledging that this is the guy. They get it. The problem is that Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he doesn't do as they expect. He doesn't come in with all power and take over and become the king that they expect. Do you remember the kind of things that Jesus did when he came into Jerusalem? Number one, he tells his disciples, his best friends, I'm going to have to die. That doesn't sound like the kind of king that anyone would expect, right? Then they have a Passover meal and they're celebrating the Passover, remembering what the Passover means. And the first thing Jesus does is he washes people's feet and says, and I want you to do the same. And then during the celebration of the Passover meal, he introduces this thing where this bread is my body and this this wine is my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Pretty difficult for them to understand what was going on and to even comprehend what Jesus was doing. In the middle of the Passover meal, he says, one of you guys is going to betray me. And he knows the guy who it is. He goes on to speak to them and he says, I want you to love one another. And greater love hath no man than to lay down his life for his friends. And I'm going to do that for you. He also tells them the world's going to hate them. He prays for them. And then, as we'll see later in this week, as we acknowledge later in this week, what happens? He does get betrayed, soldiers take him away, and you know when he gets betrayed and the soldiers take him away, he doesn't kick, he doesn't scream, he doesn't holler, he doesn't fight. He doesn't do anything that I would expect my king to do, right? Then he would go on to be beaten and abused. His friends would run away in fear. One of his closest friends would deny him. And worst of all, he dies on a cross. The king who's going to come make everything right for us dies on a cross. And when Jesus does all that, their social situation, their cultural situation, their economic situation, their financial situation, doesn't change. It's all the same. Perhaps that's something that you may be able to relate to. That you find victory in God. You follow God. He's your champion, He's your king. But certain things in your life aren't changing. And life is very, very difficult. And amidst those difficulties, the things that you can't understand, the things that don't make sense, there's a voice. And you know what that voice says? What kind of God is this? If he was a good God, how come things haven't improved for you? How come the situation hasn't changed? How come it hasn't gotten better? Apparently, he's not for you, if he's really a king. And all the doubts and the delusionment and the confusion is fed by that lie. Now, here's the thing is that for a lie to find a resting place, a home, security in me, something has to happen. I have to move away from God and His truth. Otherwise, that lie has no place to find a home. See, the truth is that when I don't understand God, And God doesn't do things the way that I want. And God and I are kind of in that wrestling match thing. You know what's really going on? That's my way of saying, I want God to do what I want. Matter of fact, I want to be God. I want God to be in agreement with me. Because I'd make all this stuff right. I'd do things my way. Now, this isn't something new. (laughs) And it's not something that's uh, its certainly a David Adams problem. But it's a problem for all of us. Let's look at um, Genesis 3-5. For God knows in that day, you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God. This was Adam and Eve. And Satan is talking to Eve, of course. And it's a really interesting thing. When they're challenged on God's truth, You know what they don't do? Hey, God, what was it you said again? Could you make it clear to us? On their own, they try to figure it out. And this idea of being like God, pretty darn appealing, isn't it? There's something in me that that appeals to. And therefore, Satan can find a root, can find a, a place, a resting place in me, because there's a piece of me that wants to be like God. And like Adam and Eve, I willfully and deliberately move independent of God, want to do my own thing. And then Satan has an open field to come in and sow whatever lies he wants. Now, the thing is, God would be just and fair, and it would be understandable if he would look at us and say, done with that. You're on your own. You figure it out. You created this mess. Could you blame him? what we do to each other, right? When we try to play God, and we judge people on their behaviors and their decisions and their voice and the things that they say, we do that to each other. But God doesn't do that. And as I was looking at this text, something that jumped out to me that was important for me, that gave me a real resting place, that that helped me to Find rest from the truth that every day, in sometimes big ways and sometimes small ways, and sometimes all day long, I reject God and want to be God. This is the truth that happens in my life. Okay? Creates an irreversible problem. But as I was looking at this text, one thing that jumped out at me was verse 15. Jesus finding a donkey sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughters of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. That text is written in all caps because it refers us to an Old Testament prophecy. It refers us to Zechariah 9.9. Can we put Zechariah Zachari- 9.9 up, please? Now, Zechariah was written about 500 years before Jesus was even born. There are about 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus, where he'd be born, how he'd be born, to whom he'd be born, what he would do in his life. Something like 300 or more. And they're all very, very exact. And this is one of them. Zechariah 9.9. Not that one. Zechariah 9.9, if we can find it. I will read it to you. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. 500 years before Jesus came. Other prophecies are written 1,500 years in in Isaiah. But the prophecies go all the way back to the time of Adam and Eve. And if we look at Genesis 3-5, do we have that one? Genesis 3:5, Adam and Eve had just decided they wanted to be like God and sought their independence. And listen what God says. To Satan, the liar, and to Adam and Eve. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. That very day, when Adam and Eve decided that they wanted to be like God and that they would do their own thing, God said, No, I will not let that stand. And he entered into that mess that they had created, and he said, I will put enmity, which means a great distance, between Satan's seed and Eve's seed. And Satan's seed is going to bruise him on the heel but the seed of Eve is going to crush his head. That was the first promise. And as I see this promise and the promise from 500 years before Jesus and all the other promises in the Old Testament, this is what strikes me. Do you think that during those days, those thousands of years, every day, do you think God's children live perfect lives? Or on a regular basis, sometimes big ways, sometimes small ways, sometimes all day long, they rejected God and decided they wanted to be like God. And during those thousands of years, when every day those children would rebel and decide to do their own thing and try to be like God, it never deterred, it never changed God's will. The promise that he made in Adam and Eve, he continued to have in motion. That he worked through the time, that he worked through the circumstances, that he worked through the people. Have you ever looked at Jesus' lineage, his family tree? I know Dolores is doing some uh, DNA stuff, uh, family genetics and chasing her family back. Have you looked at Jesus' family? It's horrible. A couple of prostitutes, murderers, drunks, adulterers. And those would be Jesus' ancestors. You think you got a bad family tree? And the point is that through all of this stuff, God is working out his plan without change. And what was true then is true today. That we sometimes don't understand. And we don't get it. And we sometimes even think, God, I want you to be this way. In fact, I want to be God. But God doesn't change his plan for us. He doesn't change his plan based on our behavior. He doesn't change his plan based on our choices. And what we see and what we recognize today in Palm Sunday is the unchanged plan of God, his immutable will that says, I came here and I'm going to die for you. And because of that, There is a change. Perhaps my social or cultural or economic or financial circumstances don't change. But there's a change. But the change is not in those outward things. The change is here. The change is in me. That I stop trying to be like God. That I stop trying to want to bring God down to my level. That I stop declaring independence from God. And I begin to trust God because he's shown me that he is trustworthy in spite of me. So as we come into this Easter season, this holy week, the passion week, my hope and my prayer for all of you is that you would see and hear and experience Easter in a new way. The traditions are great, and let's not forget them, and let's respect them. But I pray that it's a real thing that occurs. Just like we're getting ready to participate in communion. That something really happens. That's really transforming. So that by the time we get to Easter Sunday, we have a new appreciation, a new connection with what it means that Jesus rose from the dead. And what that power of the resurrection means in our lives The power of the resurrection that is within each one of us that makes change in this world. So, that's my hope and my prayer for this week. And again, if you don't have a missional community, uh, maybe Aaron will have some ideas in a moment when we talk about community. Website, that's a good idea. Um, Website tells you where the missional communities are. Uh, If you have a missional community, can you raise your hand real quick? I see a couple of y'all. Okay, look around and see the raised hands. If you see one of those raised hands and you don't have a missional community, you can go to those people and say, hey, can I come over to your house on Thursday and do communion with you? Okay, don't be bashful. Um, The last thing I want to do this morning is uh, Jason had us do this a little bit, talk about Hosanna, what Hosanna means. I said a moment ago, it means I'm begging you to save us, but I'm also recognizing that praise God because our Messiah is here. So we're going, to say, we're going to say Hosanna together. So would you say Hosanna with me? Hosanna? Hosanna? Okay, now i got to tell you, when Jesus' followers did it, apparently they made such a ruckus that the religious folks said, hey, can you quiet them down? And Jesus said, if they don't cry out, the rocks will. Okay? So this time, you can say it as loud as you want to. Okay, ready? Ho- Hosanna! All right, one more time. Hosanna! All right, awesome. Good deal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just do give thanks and praise that uh, when we cried out for mercy and help, that you heard us and you answered us in your son. And as we come in this week of Easter, we just pray that uh, we would see and hear and experience Easter in a new way. That you would transform our hearts and our minds and our souls. That we would find joy in our salvation. That we would find peace in what you've done for us. And most importantly, we would find rest in Jesus' complete work on that cross. And as we pray all these things, Lord, we worship you, we praise you, and we cry out, Hosanna. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to watch a little video now.
1: Let me tell you a little bit about myself. Here we go. Originally from Beaumont, Texas. Uh, Beautiful family. Mom and dad. uh, Older brother, older sister. I'm the baby boy. When I talk about family, I am talking about uh, a family. And the reason why I'm talking about family now is because I realize as we as church church talk about things like uh, a good, good father, as we refer to God as our good, good father, uh, it occurred to me, what if? You didn't have a good, good father. What if what I was blessed with, you didn't experience? I'm asking that we stop, identify what somebody's past is, and then offer a vision of what a good father, what a family looks like as we walk and set that example of what a good family is. As we talk about that kind of love, sometimes we don't appreciate what we have. And I think it's the same thing I found, my relationship with God. There was a period in in my life maybe a decade ago, um, where, um, I was just so blessed, uh, my mistakes would turn out perfect, um, no harm could come to me, and one morning, I woke up late, I am running behind, I am trying to get to work and things started to happen Man, that's a stretch things almost happened i almost got a speeding ticket i almost got in a wreck i almost got caught running the stop sign as i slowed down and rolled through one and from all of those things that happened in that short drive from my house to work me in a bad mood. I was like in a really bad mood. And as I went to vent that to somebody and I started saying it out loud, I started to realize that none of those things actually happened to me. Again, I almost, and I almost, and I almost, but none of those things happened. in heaven looks out for us, loves us so much. These small details he takes care of Uh, when we need to. And I almost was late, but I wasn't late yet. Uh, And so he cares about those little bitty things. Can you imagine that kind of love? I know for some people they may not have experienced. I was. My father and my mother loved me so that they cared about those little bitty things in my life. And now it enabled me to see and understand that same kind of love that God has for me. As uh, I walk through this life and I look around and I see pain and hurt, and I know. There's only one person. There's one way to go with this, and that's prayer and to our heavenly Father.
0: I'd like to encourage each and every.